together. Because if I was to ask you, what are you worried about at the moment? What are you anxious about? I think the answer for many of us would be money. I'm worried about rising interest rates. I'm worried about paying my rent. I'm worried about sticking to my budget. I'm worried about making ends meet. I'm worried about having enough for my retirement. According to to research done late last year, 64% of Aussies are stressed and anxious about their financial future. And so the question is, what do we do? Where do we turn? Now, maybe you've heard of this book, The Barefoot Investor by Scott Pappy. I actually read it earlier this year, and I'm not alone. It sold over 2 million copies. It's one of the best-selling Australian books of all time. It's estimated that there is one copy of this book in every 20 households in Australia. And so a lot of Aussies have turned to Scott Pappy. And actually, the subtitle of this book, you might be able to see on the screen, is The Only Money Guide You'll Ever Need. Now, that's a big claim, isn't it? The only money guide you'll ever need. Now, I think Jesus would have something to say about that claim. In fact, I know that Jesus has something to say about that claim because today, as we continue our journey through the Sermon on the Mount... We come to Jesus' teaching on money. And a lot of what Jesus has to say is a bit different to what the barefoot investor has to say. It's not that what he has to say is wrong, it's just that what he has to say is not enough. Because as followers of Jesus, we want to know what he has to say about our money. We want to obey what he commands us, and we want to live in light of his vision. Because his vision is for our ultimate good. It's not just about getting us ahead in this life. It's about preparing us for the next. And so we need to hear what Jesus has to say to us. And we're going to look at this passage just under three simple headings. When it comes to money, Jesus says, do not treasure it. But trust God for it and seek God above it. Let's look at these three things together. Firstly, Jesus says about money, do not treasure it. This is really the the principle that Jesus gives in verses 19 to 24. He says, when it comes to money and wealth and possessions, don't treasure them. Don't crave them. Don't serve them. Don't spend your whole life in pursuit of them. Now, let's be honest. This is easier said than done, especially in our day and especially in our culture. I mean, to say to the average Aussie today, don't crave money and possessions, it's almost like saying to a fish, don't swim in water. It's just what we do. According to some research that was done a few years ago, Australia, or according to some data rather, Australia has the fifth highest rate of household debt 
in the world. And on average, we have the largest homes in the world. Now, why do we have such big homes and so much debt? It's probably because we're trying to pay those homes off, but also because we're filling them with so much stuff. You know, it's that uh, classic line, we're buying things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. (laughs) This is the cycle that we get caught up in, pursuit of more and bigger and better. And the real danger is that we don't even see it. We don't even notice that we're caught up in it. It's just the air that we breathe and it's the water that we swim in. And this is why Jesus is so stuck in these verses. Jesus essentially says it's either God or money, but not both. In fact, to drive his point home, Jesus gives us a series of three choices that we have to make. He says that we must choose between two treasures, we must choose between two perspectives, and we must choose between two masters. Let's look at these three things. Firstly, Jesus says we must choose between two treasures. Verses 19 to 20, he says we must choose either earthly treasure or heavenly treasure. Now, what are these treasures on earth that Jesus is talking about? Well, essentially, they are our earthly possessions. They're everything that we could ever own on this earth. And according to Jesus, they are not secure because they will eventually be taken away from you. It might be that they deteriorate over time. It might be that they're stolen by someone else. It might be that they're lost in an economic downturn. Or it might be that they're left behind when you die. Whatever the means might be, earthly treasures do not last and we cannot keep them. It's a bit like the story I read this week. A a few years ago in the city of Pompeii, some construction workers found the, the corpse, the body of a woman. It seems that she had been running away. She'd been fleeing the, the eruption of the nearby Mount Vesuvius. But she'd been caught up by the hot ashes and, and by the lava. And in this woman's hands, she was clutching jewels and jewelry, which had been amazingly preserved. And she'd had it in her hands. But death had stolen it all. And that's the bottom line. According to Jesus, earthly treasure is not a wise investment because you can't take it with you. So don't store up your treasure on earth. Now, what does this mean, practically speaking? I mean, what is Jesus actually forbidding us from here? Of course, Jesus is not forbidding us from having money. Uh, The the Bible actually says that to save money is a wise thing. Proverbs chapter 6. The Bible says that to provide for our families is a necessary thing. 1 Timothy chapter 5. The Bible even says that we should enjoy the good gifts that God has given to us. And so Jesus is not saying that we shouldn't own things or we shouldn't save money or spend money or invest money. In other words, let me put it this way. Jesus is not concerned with us having money. Jesus is concerned with us loving money. Jesus is not mainly concerned with what is in our wallets, Jesus is mainly concerned with what is in our hearts. 
Here's the way that John Stott puts it in his characteristically clear way. He says, what Jesus forbids his followers is the selfish accumulation of goods, extravagant and luxurious living, the hard-heartedness which does not feel the colossal need of the world's underprivileged people, the foolish fantasy that a person's life consists in the abundance of his possessions, and the materialism which tethers our hearts to the earth. In a word, to lay up treasure on earth does not mean being prudent, making sensible provision for the future, but being covetous, like misers who hoard and materialists who always want more. In other words, it's not about what we have, it's our attitude to what we have. It's how we handle what we have. Because what we have will not last. And this is why Jesus goes on to say, so store up treasures in heaven. Now again, what are these heavenly treasures? Well, if earthly treasures are our earthly possessions, then heavenly treasures are our heavenly possessions. It's anything that we do on earth that has an impact for eternity. And I know that that sounds kind of big and impressive and imposing, but it's actually very ordinary and attainable and beautiful. Because when you develop Christ-like character, that matters forever. When you grow in your knowledge of Christ and your love for Christ, that matters forever. When you introduce others to Christ, when you give money to Christian causes, when you serve the last and the lost and the least, all of those things matter forever. They're things that we do on earth that have an impact for eternity. And Jesus says that's real treasure. In fact, let me give you an example from church history. During the early 300s, AD 300, there was a period of intense persecution in the Roman Empire. Christians were being killed and churches were being raided and robbed. And Roman officials in the town of Citra in northern Africa, they raided the local church looking for valuables, looking for treasure items like gold and silver and bronze like they might find in a pagan temple. And according to records, they did find some treasure, items that were mainly used in worship services, gold and silver chalices and a few bronze candlesticks. But they also found a treasure that they weren't expecting. The report goes on. It says 82 women's tunics, 16 men's tunics, 38 capes, 13 pairs of men's shoes, 47 pairs of women's shoes. Probably makes sense that there was more women. 19 peasants' clasps and so on and so forth. You see, they had inadvertently discovered the real treasure of the church. These clothes and items of clothing that were being given away to the poor. Jesus says, that's treasure in heaven. So you have to make your choice. Will you build your kingdom? Will you stockpile treasures for yourself? Or will you be, build God's kingdom? Will you send your treasure on ahead? It's the first choice that Jesus gives us, the choice of two treasures. The second is the choice of two perspectives. Jesus goes on in verses 22 to 23, you can see there, to talk about our eyes. 
He says, if you have healthy eyes, your whole body will be full of light and you'll be able to see where you're going. He says, if you have diseased eyes, you'll be in darkness and you won't be able to see where you're going. Now, it seems like an odd diversion, doesn't it? I mean, why is Jesus talking about optometry? I thought we were talking about money. And of course, Jesus is talking about money. He's saying that we must have the right perspective on money. Because if we have the right perspective on money, if we see money in its rightful place, not as God, but as a gift from God to be used in service of God, then we will be able to walk in the light. We'll be able to see clearly. But if we have the wrong perspective on money, if we don't have money and see money in its rightful place, if our vision becomes clouded by greed, we won't be able to see clearly and we'll be led down some dark paths. And friends, isn't this what we see happening all around us? I mean, even with the pressures we're experiencing, to be born in Australia, to live in Australia, it's like winning the golden ticket of life. We live in one of the most prosperous nations in the world. To even earn minimum wage in Australia puts you in the top 10% of income earners in the world. We have all that we could ever need at our fingertips. And yet, to quote an American comedian, everything's amazing and everyone is miserable. Or as an economist by the name of Aaron Abey writes in his book, How Much Is Enough? He says, youth and adult suicide rates have doubled or tripled over the past 40 years. The biggest selling drugs are those treating depression, anxiety, and stress. The onset of depression now occurs at age 14, anxiety at age 11. Obesity and diabetes have reached epidemic proportions. How, how did we get here? Well, we've turned our backs on God. We've put our hope in money, and it hasn't led us to utopia. It hasn't led us to freedom and flourishing. In fact, it's done the opposite. It's led us into slavery and darkness. And so again, you have to make your choice. What will you, your perspective be? We see money as a gift from God to be used in service of God, or we see money as God to be used in service of yourself. You have to choose between two treasures, you have to choose between two perspectives, and Jesus goes on and says, You have to choose between two masters. He sa Jesus says in verse 24, when it comes to money, there is no neutral ground, there is no fence to sit on. You have to make a choice it's either God or money. Now, this is really, really stark, but it's also really realistic. The fact is, money is not neutral. Money is not just an impersonal medium of exchange. Money is powerful and persuasive. Money is, in many ways, a rival God. I mean, think about it. Money makes promises to us. If I can get money, I will have security. I won't have to worry about the future. If I can just have more money, I will have freedom. I can go wherever I want. I can do whatever I want. I will have comfort. I will have status and, and so much more. Money makes promises to us. Money also makes demands of us. If you want it, you have to hustle for it. You have to drive and push and scheme and invest. You also have to make sacrifices for it. M many people sacrifice their health for money. They sacrifice their relationships for money. They work long hours without exercise or rest. They have no time for spouse or friends or, 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 or family or God. 
Money is a rival God. Now, it's true that money is a good servant. You can use money to serve God, but money is a terrible master. In fact, if we serve money, we become enslaved to it. It's a bit like choosing to drink seawater when you're thirsty. It doesn't actually satisfy you. It just makes you more thirsty, leaves you wanting more. Money doesn't fulfill what it promises. It leaves a trail of destruction. And the problem with money is that we think that we own it. We think that we control it, but actually, if we're not careful, it owns us and it controls us. It's a bit like uh, the character Gollum in The Lord of the Rings. You know, he obsessively chased and clung to the ring of power. He called it his precious. He believed it would meet his every need. But the longer that that ring remained in his grasp, the more that poisoned his soul, the more it controlled him, and eventually it ate him alive. That's what the desire for money does to us. Now, perhaps the greatest danger of money is that it leaves us numb and indifferent to God. That's what Jesus says there in verse 24. He says, if we serve money, we will actually end up despising God. Now, that word despise means to be indifferent or to be unconcerned about. And again, isn't that what we see happening in the West today? As we have become richer and more prosperous, we've also become more indifferent and unconcerned about God. Because if we love money, if we serve money, we'll be indifferent towards God. But by the same token, if we serve God, we'll be indifferent towards money. It's not that we won't care about money. It's not that we won't be responsible with money. It's just that money won't be the biggest issue in our lives. It won't be the most important factor in our decisions. So, for example, when we have to consider a few different job offers, it won't just be which job pays the most. It'll be, what about church and growth group and relationships? When we're considering a major purchase, it won't just be, well, do I want this? Or even, do I need this? But what does God think about this? We have to choose. Who is my master? Is it money or is it God? Can't be both. Money calls us to selfish living. God calls us to selfless living. We can't do both. We have to choose. It's challenging stuff, isn't it? Now, maybe you're thinking, you're right, I agree. I, I want to live with God as my master. I want to serve him wholeheartedly, but I have bills to pay and a mortgage to service and school fees and so on and so forth. I mean, many of us think if I start to care about God more than Money, if I start to live the way that God wants me to, I'm going to end up in financial trouble. And this is why I think Jesus gives us the second principle. See, the first thing he says is don't treasure it, and then the second thing he says is, but trust God for it. Now, I won't read it, but it's clear what Jesus is getting at in this next section in verses 25 to 32. Because three times in these verses he says, do not worry. Verse 25, do not worry about your life. Verse 31, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or drink or where? And then verse 34, do not worry about tomorrow. 
Now, let's be honest. If you are really worried about something and someone comes up to you and they say, just don't worry about it. It's not generally the most helpful advice, is it? And this is why Jesus doesn't just say, do not worry, and then just leave it there. He goes on and he gives us reasons why we don't have to worry. Now, before we go on and look at those reasons, let me be very clear. Worry and anxiety is a complex issue. And it can range from worries about everyday concerns all the way through to a serious mental health condition. And it can be caused by all different kinds of factors. It might be your circumstances. It might be your physiology. It might even be past trauma. And often, if this is the case, it's going to require medicine and counselling and and additional help. And that's not wrong. The point is that anxiety is not simplistic. And we shouldn't treat it simplistically. Because the Bible doesn't treat it simplistically. But we need to remember here that that what Jesus says about worry, it's in the context of what he's just said about money. Jesus specifically does not want us to worry about money and possessions and clothing and so on and so forth. Now, why is this the case? We'll look at the reasons that he gives us. The first is in verse 27. He says, can one of you, any one of you, by worrying add a single hour to your life? In other words, you shouldn't worry because it doesn't do any good. I think it was, it was Corrie ten Boom that said it probably the best. She said, worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. Worry is a bit like running on a treadmill. It takes a lot out of you, but doesn't actually take you anywhere. That's the first reason we should not worry, because it doesn't do us any good. But it's not the main reason, or even the best reason. The best reason, according to Jesus, that we should not worry... It's because we have a Father in heaven who cares for us and will provide for us. That's what Jesus says in verses 25 to 32. He basically says, look at the birds and look at the flowers and the grass. Doesn't God provide for all of them? Doesn't God give them food and rain and sunlight? Doesn't God clothe them with beauty and splendor? Don't you think that he'll provide for you as well? Don't you think he'll clothe you as well? Besides, you're much more valuable to him than them. He cares about you much more deeply than them. So turn to him. Trust him. Lean on him. And what this means is, I heard a pastor named Adam Ramsey explain it this way this week. It means that so many of our daily worries, they're simply prayers pointed in the wrong direction. Isn't worry simply prayer pointed at me? What am I going to do about this? How am I going to fix this? How can I deal with this? How am I going to make everything okay again? And what this means, if you know how to worry, you know how to pray. Because worry is taking your prayers and turning them Godward rather than inward. It's bringing them to your Father in heaven because he knows what you need, Jesus says. Because he cares for you, Jesus says. And because he has what it takes. It's what Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote in Philippians chapter 4. 
He says to the church in Philippi, he says, do not be anxious about anything. That's a big ask. It's a big call. So, so what should we do instead, Paul? What, 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 what should we do? He says, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Worry is meant to point us to God. Worry is meant to prompt us to pray. And perhaps the reason we've become so tangled up in worry, it's because we have small thoughts about God. We've forgotten that he's our Father in heaven, that he made all things, that he holds all things, that he knows all things, and that he's working in all things for our good. And because we've forgotten this incredible truth, our prayers have been pointed in the wrong direction. Or maybe we've become so tangled up in worry because we think God has small thoughts about us. We think God doesn't really think about us or care about us. After all, life is hard and painful and difficult. And sometimes things happen that just don't make sense. But Jesus says he knows what you need. You're very valuable to him. So trust him. And this is actually the ultimate answer to worry. The ultimate answer to worry is not a trouble-free life. The ultimate answer to worry is a real relationship with the real God. The God who holds all things in his good hands. The God who says, not a hair will fall from your head without his knowledge and his permission. The God who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. When you know that you belong to this God, you can begin to walk through life securely. And this is why I think Jesus ends the way that he does. He says, when it comes to money, don't treasure it. Trust God for it. And then finally he says, and seek God above it. Look how Jesus ends, verse 33. He says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Now, everyone's seeking something. For a lot of people, it's money, and it's what money can buy, but Jesus says, seek God. Seek his kingdom first, and seek it before anything else. Now, what does this mean practically? Well, it means that we come under God's reign. It means that we align with God's priorities, and it means we pursue God's agenda in every area of our lives. It means that we joyfully submit ourselves to Christ. We submit our home to Christ, our marriage to Christ, our family to Christ, our friendships to Christ, our jobs to Christ, our morality to Christ, our bank balance to Christ, our tax returns to Christ our social media use to Christ, our entertainment choices to Christ, our leisure time to Christ. We submit every area of our lives to Christ. Now, why do we do this? Why can we do this? Because Christ submitted himself for us. He submitted himself even to death. For us, the one who had everything gave up everything 
for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, capital R, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich, capital R, true riches, lasting riches. Because if you have Christ, you have everything you need both now and forever. In fact, let me close with this story that I read this week. There was a wealthy English baron named Fitzgerald, and he had only one son and one heir. And sadly, after this son left home, he died shortly after. And this was a tragedy from which the father never fully recovered. But even still, in the years ensuing, his wealth continued to increase, and he continued to invest in great paintings by great artists. And when the baron died, it was discovered that in his will, he wanted all of his paintings to be sold. Now, because these paintings were so valuable and so sought after, museum representatives and art collectors, they flocked to this auction. And there was a huge crowd on the day of the auction. The lawyer stood up to read from the baron's will, And the instruction said, the first painting to be sold is the painting of my beloved son. Now, this particular portrait of the son that was done by an unknown artist, and in all honesty, honesty, it wasn't of great quality. And so the only bidder on this painting was an old servant of the baron. He'd known the boy, he'd loved the boy, and he bought it for a small sum of money, mainly for its sentimental value and for the memories that it held. Now, after the sale had been completed, the lawyer stood up again to read from the will, and he read, whoever buys my son gets everything. The auction is over. Whoever has the son has everything. That's the incredible truth of the gospel. Whoever you are, wherever you've come from, however you've walked in here, The invitation to you today is come to the Son. Receive the Son. And in Him, find everything you could ever want, hope for, or imagine. So what about you? Have you received the Son? Let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you have held nothing back from us, that you have not been stingy towards us, but you have lavished on us grace and goodness and generosity that we do not deserve. You have freely given us everything in your son, the Lord Jesus. Lord, where we have been holding back from you, where we have been failing to trust you, where we have been looking to ourselves instead of you, forgive us. Lord, help us today to to fix our eyes on Jesus, your Son, our Lord, and help us to see in him all that we could ever need 
all that we could ever want. Eternal riches and joy and glory that we could not even fathom. And Lord, thank you that you are the greatest gift of all. To know you, to walk with you, to trust you, to belong to you. It's more than we deserve. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.